Good morning, everybody. Let's hear it for Gabe and Jordan. Yeah. So we are in uh, week four of a series called Human, where we are examining from a biblical perspective what it means to be a human, which I know is a bit ambition, uh, a bit ambitious for a, a sermon series. I mean, the whole Bible, all 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses, the entire Bible could be considered, among other things, could be considered as God's treatise on what it means to be human. And I'm certainly not going to attempt to incorporate the entire Bible into this series, which I'm sure you are all relieved to hear. But the purpose of this series is to explore from a biblical perspective what it means to be a human being in the context of our present time and place that we live in, with, with its unique paradigms and challenges and pitfalls, which is still uh, a hugely ambitious undertaking. And we probably will barely have scratched the surface, uh, the surface by the end of the uh, series. But I hope more than anything uh, in this series to, to shine a light on some of the timeless truths found in Scripture and look at how they impact and inform and warn and guide us today. And even more than that, how these timeless truths lift us up and, and set us free and cause us to flourish and genuinely give life to the human race if, if we will heed them. So, to review um, where we've gone so far in this series, I, and I encourage you, by the way, to listen to the previous messages in this series. Um, you can watch these messages online. Um, can you put that first slide up for the... Um, Let's see, the sermon series there. There we go. Thank you. Um, and I don't know why. Give me a second here. <laughs> Time out. Uh, recalibrating, and because I control the slide from up here, and sometimes it's, there we go. There's that. Okay, I think we're good to go. Uh, anyway, you can look at these, or watch or listen to these uh, these messages in this series by going to hopesb.com slash messages. And... Um, they are posted there. Otherwise, it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you miss those messages, kind of like jumping into the middle of a movie. You don't know what's going on. You know, a lot of it doesn't make sense. So this, this whole series is really more like one big, long sermon. I'm breaking down into what I hope are bite-sized pieces so that you don't have to listen to one big, long, five-and-a-half-hour sermon. You're welcome. Uh, and it's, it, it's an enormously consequential subject that we're covering, which literally has epic implications for the human race. So let me just kind of briefly recap some of the main points that we've covered so far. First of all, starting at ground level, human beings are not just animals. While human beings possess an animal nature in a biological sense, we are not merely highly evolved animals as most people think, which we should all see as good news. Though for some it's not, and it is in fact a point of confusion, and for others maybe even a point of consternation. You and I are not just creatures of instinct, fated to obey our animal impulses and appetites. We are creatures, we are beings who can rise above our animal nature. We can imagine and construct a new and better version of our future, our lives, 
our world, our desires and impulses don't define us and don't need to enslave us. We are not mere products of our genetics or our environment. We can make choices. No matter what situations we are facing in life, we can choose. We have that power and ability. And the reason we have that power and ability is because we were made in the imago Dei, which means the image and likeness of our created creator God, um, who himself has volition, he has consciousness, he is creative, reflective, he can delight in and enjoy beauty and goodness and, and delight in his created works. He can formulate ideas and hold them in his mind and work to bring them to pass. And according to scripture, human beings are the only creatures made in the image and likeness of our creator God and has given us such attributes including our hardwired hunger for thirst and hunger and thirst for purpose and meaning in life all of which we identify as a spiritual part of our nature animals do not wonder what life's you know about life's purpose and meaning and ponder their existence as far as we can tell these attributes that are unique to human beings cannot adequately be explained through purely naturalistic or biological mechanisms or through evolutionary process. And to, to deny your spirituality is to deny your humanity. Um, it is these attributes that make us unique and extraordinary uh, and extraordinarily valuable above everything else in all of creation. If it were not uh, for these things, we would be merely just like the rest of the animal kingdom. But God has given us unique attributes that give us tremendous value. If we were the mere products of random naturalistic force, forces, which is really the only other possible alternative, if we were merely the result of particles haphazardly smashing together, occasionally in such a way as to accidentally create life forms that could you know, mysteriously replicate and evolve, if that was the case, then those who argue that the human race is nothing more than a virus or a cancer, which there are those who argue that, you know, possessing no more innate value or worth than a parasite, which are, there are those who argue that, well, they may in fact be right if that's all we are, which is a kind of hopeless, depressing idea, isn't it? And if you truly believed that, well, that would obviously have a horrible impact on how you treat other human beings if you thought they were just mere parasites or viruses. But we all, for some reason, we all intuitively know that that's not the case. We all know that we were made for more and inherently possess more value, more worth than mere animals. But the reason is because we were created in the image and likeness of of God, the creator of all things. Now, the problem is that that image and likeness has been marred and corrupted by sin. The Imago Dei was damaged in every single one of us. We no longer accurately reflect the image of God. It's still there in every single one of us, but as it has been severely defaced as, and is in need of restoration. This leaves us in a state of conflict. We are all conflicted. We're in a state of conflict with one another, with creation, with ourselves. God told us that that would be part of the consequences of our rebellion against him. 
and, and that we would now struggle, we would now wrestle, we would toil, we would experience hardship, and as creation itself would, would no longer fully cooperate with us, life for us now in this world would be a struggle. And we all, every single one of us, have experienced that, haven't we? And more than anything else, we would struggle inwardly. We would struggle with ourselves, with our own conflicted nature, our animal self and our spiritual self. From a spiritual perspective, life would be a continual battle, a war between our flesh and our spirit. And we've looked at a lot of verses uh, from Scripture that communicate these ideas. Here's, here's another verse uh, in Paul's letter to the Galatians that illustrates this idea. He says, the acts of the flesh, the flesh, the animal nature, the acts of the animal nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgy, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God because, because all those things are part of our animal nature. And our animal nature cannot, in, cannot inherit the spiritual. The, the kingdom of God is spiritual. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we have the power of choice to choose between the flesh or the spirit. In this conflict between our flesh, our animal nature, and our spirit, we can choose which one wins. We can choose to rise above and rule over our animal nature. Now, last week, we, um, I didn't want to quite go to that verse. Yeah, it's fine. Just leave it up there. Um, last week, we concluded this series by uh, reading some verses from Paul's letter to the uh, Christians living in Rome in the first century. Verses talking about how our flesh, our animal nature, desires one thing and our spiritual nature desires something else. And how we are, these, these two things are at war with each other. And, and how if our anim animal nature prevails... Uh, our natural appetites, you know, and impulses for sexual immorality and our penchant for anger and rage, selfishness, all those other things. If that wins, it means death for us. But if our spiritual nature prevails, that part of us that is or, uh, uh, oriented around holy love and joy, peace, kindness, goodness, self-control, then if that part wins out, then the result is life and peace. We're going to come back to that passage from Romans and, and pick up where we left off a little bit later on in the message. But along the way, we addressed the question, then why did God create us with an animal nature if it was going to be such uh, a, a curse to us? And the answer was, if you remember, that God intended for our physical animal nature, he intended it for to, to be a gift to us, to serve us, to be a blessing, but never, never to be in charge, never to be dominant. But we made it dominant, didn't we? And so as a result, and, and uh, excuse me for a minute, I'm going to get a little metaphysical here. So as a result, we were thrust into, or perhaps thrust, we thrust ourselves into a realm where the physical, natural part of reality 
It's very obvious to us, but the spiritual, the supernatural part of reality is now more hidden and obscured because of our own choice to defer to our animal physical nature. And it is now a struggle for us to make our way back to that place, that realm, where our flesh and our spirit are in right relationship with one another, our God-intended design. This is our struggle as human beings. And again, the good news is that this door is open to us. This is our, uh, uh, this is our very real possibility. And not only our possibility, but our assignment, our invitation from God. We have the ability to choose. We've been given that power. It doesn't mean the choice is easy or painless, but we've been told often and have experienced firsthand that life in this world is going to involve pain and hardship. It's inevitable. There's no way around it. It's part of the fallen human condition. But in God, we can largely choose the nature of our pain. The pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Remember, pain of discipline is measured in ounces, whereas the, measure, uh, the, 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 um, uh, whereas the pain of regret is measured in tons. That's what, you, what we said. Now, uh, now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Jim, sorry, uh, but this is not very helpful. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm not a very disciplined person. In fact, I don't really like discipline. Discipline is hard. Uh, and I know you've been talking about how we need to embrace discipline and hardship because that's what the Bible encourages us to do and because that's what leads to transformation and, and to freedom, allegedly. But I tried all that. And I, I'm just coming to the conclusion that I'm just not, you know, I'm just not good at those things. It doesn't work for me. You may be shocked to hear me say... I get it. I can relate. I'm right there with you. And you may be shocked to know that the Apostle Paul also got it, which is why he wrote some of the stuff he wrote in, the in his letter to the Romans, which we're going to look at in a few minutes. And you may be shocked to discover that Jesus gets it, and he can relate. And far more importantly, he is right there with you. He, he, he became one of us and faced all the same junk that you and I have to face. So he gets it. And that's why I want to look at this verse this morning. It's something Jesus said uh, one time to a bunch of tired, skeptical, worn out, burned out people just trying to make it through life and feeling like they weren't sure they had what it takes. This is what Jesus said. This is the verse that's on the screen right now. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to read it again. It's such an important verse. I'm going to read it again, but let's read it from a different translation. We have all these translations of the Bible, and they all say the same thing, but they all kind of word it just a little bit differently uh, because, well, for a lot of reasons. But, but it, it's helpful to look at it from a different translation because sometimes different things stand out to you. So uh, this is what, uh, here's how the Living Bible paraphrases that verse. Come to me, and I will give you rest all of you who work so hard beneath a heavy yoke. Wear my yoke, 
for it fits perfectly. And let me teach you, for I am gentle and humble, and you shall find rest for your souls, for I give you only light burdens. And we go, is that really true? I'm not so sure. That's not been my experience. Why do my burdens and hardships seem so heavy and often borderline unbearable? Can this verse be true for me? And I totally believe that it can be true for every one of us. But first, let's look carefully at this verse and understand what Jesus is saying and understand what he is not saying. Because if we misunderstand what Jesus is saying, it will absolutely lead to a lot of disappointment and frustration. Jesus, first of all, he is not saying that if you come to him, you will have a burden-free life. There is no such thing as a burden-free, struggle-free life in this world, even though that's what everybody is looking for, a life completely free of yokes and burdens of any and all kinds. And, and many have bought into the deception that unless you are free of all yokes and all burdens, then you are not really free. Jesus is not inviting you into a yoke-free, burden-free life. He's inviting you to slip into his yoke and let him give you a burden that is tailor-made just for you. Just to make sure we're all on the same page. A yoke is a specifically shaped piece of wood fastened to a harness that fits onto the shoulders, uh, usually of a pair of oxen, oxen so that they can pull a plow. The yoke is not tension-free. And in fact, it involves a significant amount of tension. You could actually go so far as to say it is specifically designed to induce tension. But a well-crafted yoke manages the tension and distributes the load evenly so that it maximizes the strength of the ox while minimizing the stress and fatigue of the oxen's joints and in, on, on the oxen's joints and body. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle, and the, resent, the end result will be that you will find rest. You will find rest for your souls, even in the midst of tension. But we still go, but why do I even have to have a yoke? Right? I mean, why, wouldn't I be better off if I had no yoke at all, no burden at all? I mean, w wouldn't you agree? That's the way most of us think, right? Most people in this, think, uh, most people in this world think today. Throw off any and all yokes and live totally and completely free from burdens or restraints or tensions. Here's the problem with that. Just by nature of reality, what appears to be the way, uh, uh, what appears to be the way to a life of complete and total freedom invariably ends up being anything but. but. Uh, eat whatever you want, whenever you want, as much as you want, and how does that end up? Health problems, obesity, you know, loss of freedom and opportunity, bondage. Get out those credit cards, buy as much as you want without restraint, where does that end up? Debtor's prison, loss of freedom and opportunity, bondage. Drink whatever you want, swallow whatever you want, smoke whatever you want, do whatever you want. It all ends up in a loss of freedom and opportunity and some kind of bondage, doesn't it? 
See, Jesus talked about how the wide gate and the broad road look so inviting, so liberating. There's lots of space. It seems to promise freedom. But in the end, it results in a loss of freedom. And Jesus says, ultimately, it ends up in destruction and death. Whereas the narrow road looks, the narrow gate, the narrow road looks so restrictive, so confining, but it opens up to freedom and possibility and opportunity and life. See, everybody wants freedom. Foolishly thinking that freedom is the ability to do whatever you want without any consequences or side effects. And there are those who, who feverishly promote that gospel. There always has been. The Apostle Peter, back in the first century, warned about such people. He said, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves. Slaves of sin and corruption. For you are a slave to whatever controls you. You become a slave to what controls you, including your own lusts, impulses, and appetites. So the pursuit of a life completely free of yokes and burdens virtually always ends up as a life of unbearable, crushing, intolerable burdens. We're talking about what it means to be a human being. This is part of the human experience, which is why Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Why is Jesus' yoke better and lighter? What's so different about the yoke Jesus wants to put on, on our necks? I mean, come on. I grew up in church, all right? A Catholic. I grew up in Catholic. And I discovered, as I'm sure many of you have, that the yoke religion puts on you is not even easy or light. Religious yokes are often the worst yokes conceived of by man. So why does Jesus say his yoke is easy and his burden in life? What's so special about his yoke? And that's a good question. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the yoke Jesus invites each one of us into. See, we tend to think that the yoke is all about working hard so that we can earn our keep and measure up and and pay our way, right? Which we all know is an impossible proposition. We can never work hard enough, struggle long enough to earn our way back to paradise or to earn God's love or whatever. But still we got to pull this plow and carry this load because we're being punished. This is our curse. So we're tempted to think. You know, it's interesting that Jesus uses an analogy of an animal here. See, yokes were not put on humans. They were put on animals, specifically oxen. So I'm guessing Jesus' words to his listeners could have been comparable to someone saying, let me put my leash on you. Yet that's exactly what Jesus seemed to be saying here, not at all apologizing for his inference that we are still all, in certain respect, animals. But what Jesus is clearly not saying here is, come to me, take my yoke on you, and, and let me teach you a lesson. He's not saying something, he's not saying that at all. He's saying something quite different. He's inviting us. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and you will find it easy and light. 
far from it being a means of punishment or a means of making you pay for all your sins and mistakes, the yoke of Jesus invites you to, the yoke of Jesus invites you into a, a lighter load and, and an easier burden. Listen, what if this yoke Jesus wants to place on your shoulders is part of his plan. Listen very carefully right here. If you're falling asleep, wake up right now. Wake up, okay. What if this yoke Jesus wants to place on our shoulders is part of his plan to harness, to rein in, to bring back under control our, our animal natures, that part of us that we let out of its cage and now dominates us so mercilessly? What if the yoke Jesus gives us is his means to rein in that part of our nature that has gone rogue? and to bring it back into control so that it can once again become our servant and not our master, to become a blessing to us and not a curse as it has become. God's ultimate objective is to free us from the tyranny of our animal natures and to turn us into his sons and daughters. But in order for that to happen, we must embrace the tension that his yoke and his burdens place on us. And it's a, tension that it, it's a tension that restrains our animal natures and puts our spiritual nature back in charge. This is the yoke he wants us to allow him to place on our, on our shoulders. This is the tension we must learn to live with joyfully and embrace gratefully as we, underst you know, as we understand what it is ultimately producing. And this is why I titled the message today, the, the, the title of the message today is A Growing Tension, because this is a good tension, one that will help us to grow. We are commanded, you know this, we're commanded over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament by Jesus himself, as well as all the other writers of scriptures, we're told to, what, live a holy life. We're commanded, there's no question about it, we're commanded to live a holy life, and yet we fail over and over and over again. Here's the one thing I hope you take home with you, with you today. The reason you take the yoke of Jesus upon yourself and choose to live in that tension, the reason you embrace the struggle to live a holy life is not to measure up, it's not to earn your way, it's not to somehow qualify for God's love and for a place in heaven. No, that's not even possible for you. And for you to even think that way will leave you frustrated and defeated and completely missing the point. It will leave you with a heavy, burdensome yoke of your own making, which will soon become intolerable. The reason that you choose to take his yoke and to live in that tension, the reason you struggle every day to live a holy life, is because the alternative becomes repulsive to you. You do not want to remain an animal. You want to be changed. You want to be healed. You want your fallen, fleshly animal nature to be brought back into total submission to the Spirit because you know you were made for more, something far more than mere animal existence. You want to live in the Master's house and dine at His table, but not as His favorite pet, but as His son and His daughter. And you shudder at the thought of remaining an egg or a larvae or a caterpillar. You want to fly. You know it's what you were created for, and the only way to do that is to be transformed. Sorry for the sudden switch in metaphors, but you get what I'm saying. And, and the only way to be transformed is by embracing the yoke, the, 
the tension that Jesus wants to lay on your shoulders and you learn from him and let him teach you. See, compared to the burden you wind up carrying when you reject God, go your own way, chart your own course, do your own thing in search of your version of freedom, compared to the yoke you wind up with in that scenario, his yoke is easy and his burden is so light. You see, his yoke is not punishment. It is love. It is the tension, the restraint we must all embrace that will reign in our fleshly nature and once again make our flesh our servant instead of our master. And what you find when you embrace his yoke and his burden is that it was tailor-made just for you. And that yoke that was tailor-made just for you gives you rest. Gives you rest and peace. Now, I have to warn you. When you embrace the struggle, the tension to rein in your beastly nature and live a holy life, there will be times along the way that you are going to feel bad about yourself. This is part of the tension, okay? You may even at times experience guilt and shame. I know, those are bad, 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 bad words in our culture. The worst, the worst words. See, we have become conditioned by our culture to think that to feel bad about yourself, particularly to feel guilt and shame, is about the worst imaginable sin you could commit against yourself. We've been conditioned to think that feelings of guilt and shame are bad and unhealthy and should be eradicated by any means possible. And there is some truth to that. But what our culture has taught us is to wage war on the feelings of guilt and shame, but not on the root cause of the guilt and shame. Our culture has completely dismissed even the notion that we should wait, wage war, war on the root causes of our feelings of guilt and shame, the vast majority of which come from our coddling and enabling our animal nature to our own detriment. See, there are things much worse than feeling bad about yourself. Could it be just a suggestion? Could it be just to entertain the possibility, however remote, that feelings of guilt and shame are actually normal and healthy warning signals that we are letting our animal nature run wild and letting it call the shots and take over to our own detriment? But here is the good news. In embracing the yoke that Jesus invites us into rather than adding to the burden and weight of guilt and shame we are carrying, instead we find a lighter burden and a far better fitting yoke and the gentle grace and forgiveness of Jesus who is meek and humble and offers us rest, a, a lifting of our guilt and our shame. See, when you, when you embrace the yoke Jesus offers you, you find the remedy for guilt and shame. Not a mere analgesic, but a full-on remedy in the way of forgiveness and transformation in, in his embrace of you, even in your animal state, and his commitment to helping you become sons and daughters. Now, going back to the passage that I told you earlier we would go back to, Romans 8, Paul uh, talks about... Um, how our fleshly nature and our spiritual nature are always at war. There, there, there's a battle. There's tension that exists between these two parts of our nature. 
But let's look at where he ends up going with all of this. This is what Paul says. What then shall we say in response to these things? It's hopeless. It's too hard. We'll never make it. It's no use. No, that's not what we should say in response to all these things. If God is for us, and he most definitely is for you this morning. Do you realize that? God is for you. He is not against you. He is for you. If God is for us, well, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He sent his son to bear our burdens, to suffer the con our consequences, endure our pain, to, to pay for our sin, purchasing our forgiveness. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those God has chosen? Here's, here's God providing the remedy for our guilt and shame. It is God who justifies. He is the one who has done it. Who is the one who, who, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Certainly not Jesus. He's the one who, who gave his life to lift condemnation off of you. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I mean, wouldn't you love to hear uh, what Jesus is praying for you and I on our behalf? Wouldn't you love, what, do you, what kinds of things do you suppose he's praying for us right now? Who shall... Um, I want to make sure I'm at the right place. Who then? Am I in the right verse? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Yes, I'm still here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now here, Paul quotes from Psalm 44 which is a psalm where the writer is actually questioning God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. The writer feels that God has abandoned him. Even though he has remained faithful to God, he feels like God has abandoned him. He is struggling, and there is this uncomfortable tension in this psalm. Paul quotes just one verse, knowing his readers would likely know and remember the full context of this psalm. And, and you know, then perhaps relate, it, uh, relate to it in their personal experience with suffering and hardship in their own lives. So he quotes that verse, and then he immediately pivots to this. No, in all these things, in our troubles, our uh, hardships, our tensions, our struggles and sufferings, we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but in the original Greek language, we are hyper conquerors is literally what it says they're super conquerors in our battle that rages inside of us between our flesh and spirit our animal nature and our spiritual nature we have assured victory and are overwhelming conquerors through him who loved us for i am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We win the battle. Our struggle is victorious. And on the way, in the process, in route to our overwhelming victory, we are invited into a yoke 
into a degree of tension that is, in fact, easy and a burden that is, in fact, light when we embrace the yoke that Jesus, that Jesus custom makes for each one of us. And we allow, and we allow him to teach us. Um, so Jesus, this morning we say yes to your invitation. And we, Lord, step into the rest that you have promised for us the rest from our guilt and shame, the rest from our struggle, the rest from trying to measure up and to qualify. We, we rest from all that, and we simply slip into the yoke with you and let you teach us and let you love us and let you help, us to tran uh, help to transform us into sons and daughters by defeating the fleshly animal nature, Lord, that, that has for so long tried to enslave us. Lord, we say yes to your invitation, and we thank you, Jesus, that you did go to the cross on our behalf in order to secure, to give us that assured victory. Thank you, Jesus, in your name.